Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history, lovingly researched and recorded by your hosts, Margot and Sonia. Hi, my name is Margot, and I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on Indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. Okay, great. All right, ladies. Hey, people. Let's get information. Book <laughs> reference. It's 18 years too late. It's not actually been that long. It just feels that long. Oh, my God. I had a panic. <laughs> it's, it was just like 18 no. years? It just feels like, like 18 no years. no possible no. way. It just feels like 18 years because the pandemic has taken up like 17 years, I think, roughly. Well, that and also I just found out that Twilight's like 15 years old and that... What? How yeah. dare you say this in my good seventeen Christian 17 years old. 17 years old. That's how long Twilight has been in existence because it is 2022 now and that was 2005. Oh, right. And I, okay, I was thinking of it in terms of the movies and was like... No. incorrect the movies aren't. yeah no well, but like okay. twilight yeah, the which as gotcha, like gotcha. an actual twilight what's the what is the word twihard is that what they were calling yes. them in 2008 yes. <laughs> okay so as like a certified twilight freak um the books are where that journey really begins and that was 2005 I gotcha. and that's when i was reading them it was in 2005 like as soon as they came out i was like ha what is this gotcha uh, all right, I think we should start yeah. the episode for real now and not include all this. <laughs> but thank you for that panic attack. So, hello everyone, welcome to this week's podcast. <laughs> it's not about Twilight. It's not about Twilight, unfortunately, but it could be. Tune in the next season when we're going to talk about more folklore again. So we can talk about vampires. Yeah. They'll probably be vampires. I think also that Twilight does fit, at least on some level, into our theme today because our theme is gay love. Yes, that's true. And I feel like a lot of the people who are like into the Twilight Renaissance, which is the Twilight Renaissance, I think, is fully acknowledging that it is a, like a horror story. Yes. But also, I do think that this time around, everyone. Maybe not everyone, but most people seem to be in agreement that, like, the story would have been so much better if Edward and Jacob just got together because they clearly had this, like, thing <laughs> for each other. And then Bella and yeah, Alice should have been together. Bella and Alice! Because they love uh, and support yeah. each other. And then Edward and Jacob could have had their, like, like, they're like, I hate you, but I love you, but I hate you, but I love you. Like, love story. Yeah. It would have, it would have worked yeah. out really well for everyone. Everyone could have been happy. And instead, Jacob falls in love with Retinol, so that's fine. Who is a baby? Yeah, she's, though, again, like I said at the top of this thing, um, she's now, like, a full-on teenager, well, so. I mean, she's a full-on teenager three years after being she's born, like... so it doesn't really matter either way. <laughs> that's also true. 
What an arbitrary place to like stop growing to is like they're like I am now in my fully mature state which is 17 which is not like 25 I think is when like everything sort of like Yeah, that's when your brain to, like, is done you're cooking. an adult. So like why 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 isn't she like to look like she's 25 years old? Why would she be going to high school forever with her pa- I mean Any- also why did they go anyway, to high school forever? We can't do people this. In the point is the point is, Twilight would have been much better if they had just allowed them to be gay. But we can't have that. Yes. Like their true forms. Yes. We will forever just have to live with the fact that Bella and Alice are actually gal pals and not gal pals TM. So anyway, today we're going to be talking about the history of same-sex relationships, homosexuality, um... Homosexuality. Yeah, that word comes up. I mean, that's not really a word till the 1800s. But being gay, being a lesbian, this is the the special for Valentine's Day. <laughs> um, unfortunately, because it is a history podcast, some of it's going to be very sad. Yeah, but you know, we tried to pick a cheerier topic. Was this or yeah. death? So, you know. <laughs> let's start out with ancient greece you all know where this is going trigger warnings all around are you ready have you clicked off if you don't want to hear about this great all right time for me to jump in so let's just rip this band-aid off most widespread socially significant and socially acceptable form of same-sex relationships in ancient greece would have been amongst elite circles typically between adult men and pubescent-ish boys. So this is called... That ish is doing a lot of work. Yeah, it's really doing a lot of work. Um, This is a practice known as pederasty, um, where basically a boy between the ages of about 12 to about 20 would be... um, having sexual relations with a man who like a grown man who's in his like 30s 40s plus um so it seems like the roots of this lie in the tribal past of greece like we're talking greece deep cuts um before the rise (laughs) of the city state so basically the idea is you would have these tribal communities that are organized around um like different age groups so when a boy kind of begins to come of age so it was around maybe 12 13 years old he would learn to become a man by being kind of taken under the wing of an older man in the tribe and this would be sort of his rite of passage so like the older man did have a responsibility to educate the younger boy in like the ways of life like that sounded like i mean stuff like you know he'd have to teach him about like being a responsible adult but also sex. So, like, there's that. Um, but then once this kind of came, in, like, this kept uh, being... I'm just trying to... I'm sorry. I'm trying to think. <laughs> this relationship first. It's like, yes. Like, come, let me have sex with you. But don't worry. I will teach you how to file your taxes. <laughs> I mean, essentially, <laughs> it's like, 
let me have sex with you and then I will teach you how to like I don't know hunt and gather or whatever like I'm not saying this is I'm not condoning this not good very bad zero out of ten but like here we are but basically once the Greeks started settling into city states the same idea sort of stuck around um but rather than like going off somewhere for like a while with your like Mm -hmm. older gentlemen you would stay within the city walls probably right right um because really ancient greeks i mean just in general didn't have this idea of like sexual orientation as we would see it today right so the Mm -hmm. idea was what mattered it it didn't matter like if you were an adult man who you were attracted to whether that was men or women what mattered was that you were the active role where you were penetrating if you were being penetrated that was associated with being feminine being lower status or being youthful right so if even like if you were and if you were born into an elite family and you were a boy right young man between the ages of 12 to 20 ish you could be that like mm. passive feminine quote unquote role um but it was this idea right that like once you came of age were like into your 20s you were supposed to switch basically and take on the active role um because otherwise that would be like degrading yourself essentially right so again like a very different idea of what we would uh would think of this as however like there is one second mm-hmm. right I mean this is sort of what was going on in theory in practice like there like there could have been right like more equal relations um, but it, you just mm-hmm. wouldn't be like super Right, like, if you were both grown men and you were having sexual relations mm-hmm. together, like, you probably wouldn't have been super open about it because you didn't want someone to know that you were being feminized, right? Because, like, being, quote-unquote, masculine was, like, very, very important. So you wouldn't right. um, want somebody to know that you had taken on the passive role, if that makes sense. But, mm-hmm. you know, it was definitely, like, it's less spoken about, but it also, like, for the most part, there were some exceptions because obviously um, Greek city-states all had very different ideas around laws and what was legal and what wasn't. Um, but for the most part, right, like, there would not have been, um, like, criminalization of this behavior. Like, you were just sort of looked down upon, perhaps, but it wasn't a criminal act, right? Um, and then when it comes to, like, however, when it comes to lesbians or, like, well, that word wouldn't really exist yet, but <laughs> yeah. the point is women loving other women. We have, of course, the queen herself, yeah. Sappho, a poet from the yeah. island of Lesbos who wrote many love poems addressed to women. Mm-hmm. And sometimes these poems are just her pining. Sometimes it is about requited love, where the love is consummated. And we don't have a perfect, like, complete set, because obviously she lived a long time ago. 
But the estimate mm-hmm. is that she wrote close to 12,000 lines of poetry <laughs> on her love for other women. So while only 600 of those lines have survived, like, fantastic. <laughs> but yeah, it, the general record in ancient Greece of women loving women, aside from Sappho, is pretty mm-hmm. sparse. Again, probably because in a lot of ways women were much more, like, weren't as in the public eye. So they weren't being as written about. However, you know, there is speculation because especially in, um, like, a traditional Greek home, right? Like, all the women live together in their own wing. So the woman, her daughters, and, like, all the female servants and slaves... So it's like, you don't know. You don't know what they were getting up to. Gals being pals. Now we have, we're getting into ancient Rome, where again, we still have the same idea of a dichotomy between the active, dominant, and masculine role versus Mm -hmm. the passive, submissive, and feminine role. So it's again, sort of socially acceptable and kind of expected that a Roman man would be fine having sex with both male and female partners as long as he was taking the penetrative role. Again, not really a huge amount of other, like, of, of much else to say. It stays quite similar. Yeah. Um, and as for women, it is, again, quite sparse. But there are kind of descriptions of there will sometimes be descriptions in literature of, like, women who have sex with other women or, like, women who have these, like, but it's it's portrayed as, like, women having these, like, huge sexual appetites, right? Where it's, like, it's not necessarily, um, like, it's it's portrayed as not necessarily this, like, relationship so much as, like, yeah. women would be crazy. They'd just be out here... <laughs> You know, doing whatever all the time with anyone because they're just so needy. Like, they don't care who it's with. But again, you know, once again, women took on this less public role a lot of the time. So that could explain some of that. Uh, Pre-Christian. You know what females be doing. (laughs) That's what I'm saying, you know. (laughs) Uh, Britain seems to have been a little bit different, especially when you look at Celtic society. Um, there seems to be, I mean, this is based on like a lot of reconstructing what very little evidence exists, but in pre-Roman Celtic Britain, it does seem that male homosexuality was permissible and that it was acceptable between free adult men. Um, based, but again, this is based on outsiders writing about this so typically like romans writing about what they saw or heard of kind of thing um but then as it becomes sort of romanized in britain right like with the british the roman invasion into britain there there you, you get again this same sort of idea of it's okay as long as you're taking on the dominant role. If you are taking on the, quote, passive role, then that's, like, it, it becomes less okay. So we have this sort of 
same same ideas sort of swirling around throughout a lot of areas. Uh, but then yeah. Christianity comes onto the scene and stuff becomes a little different. <laughs> now, I do want to give the caveat that, like, while same-gender relations were not acceptable within, like, medieval Christianity, um, they also did not necessarily have this, like, same intense, like, disdain and problem with same gender relationships that we see in a lot of like modern Christianity. Right. Like they're not out here like the Westboro. Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah. Okay. At least not for the first while. So basically around 400 Christianity begins to introduce these new kind of sexual codes that are based around Mm -hmm. holiness and around purity So you kind of have these two main ideas that emerge, which is, okay, on one hand saying, really, we should promote a life that is mainly focused on platonic relationships. So like, really shouldn't be having sex whatsoever, if at all possible, because like the best way to live is to be like, abstinent non-sexual being because like you know you're supposed to focus on like spiritual matters rather than physical yeah but you're not supposed to be enjoying your body too much exactly that's not what it's there that's for. not what it's supposed to be there for right <laughs> however we have the slightly less anti-sex view which under this approach was sex is fine as long as it's being used for procreation or like possible procreation. So sexual activity is fine, but only if there's at least a chance of there being procreation happening. So basically at this point, right? Like that is that basically becomes the sort of dominant idea is, you know, okay, if you are going to be a monk or a nun or a priest, you should be celibate. Well, priests don't have to be 100% celibate until later in the Middle Ages, but, like, that's the ideal, right? The ideal is celibacy, but, okay, fine, if you really can't keep it in your pants, you're allowed to have sex, but only you have to get married, and you're only allowed to have types of sex that are going to be that can result in babies because you know sex is not good (laughs) very not good so it's not so much like a like same-sex relationships are bad so much as like yeah you're not allowed to have sex with someone of the same sex but you're also not allowed to masturbate you're not allowed to like have like heterosexual couples are not allowed to like have anal sex or oral sex right like p in v only (laughs) preferably man on top if woman's on top it's inverting their natural roles right (laughs) like it's not and then her womb can get slippery or something yeah it makes it less likely (laughs) yeah it's a whole thing however the other thing is like yeah okay that's like that's the 
again, sort of the standard, like, these are the rules. Mm, But also, how much are people following it? Probably not that much, especially for the first, like, few centuries there. And for the most part, like, homosexuality was not given any, like, particular, like, it wasn't given particularly more, like, penance or anything or like seen as like any more of a sin than any other like Mm -hmm. sexual stuff you might be getting up to so like in the 8th century if you had quote unnat if if women did quote unnatural female acts then they would have to do penance for 160 (laughs) days which like penance would normally look like prayer maybe some charity work you know go feed some hungry people but there was a slightly harsher harsher stance on quote sodomy where you would have to do penance for one year right but that could that doesn't necessarily only refer to yeah no because same sex yeah no that would refer to uh heterosexual relationships as well yeah and like if you look at things like masturbation, um, sex outside of marriage, like other, like it, it seems roughly in line with that. Where it's like, hey, maybe don't, like, oh, don't do it again. Go pray about it. It's fine. <sighs> However, so as the Middle Ages wear on, things start to get much worse about this. <laughs> Okay. So basically, in the 11th century, we start seeing. Well, I have a I have a question just before we move on. At this point in time, mm-hmm. is there a concept of like homosexuality as we would think of it today, as like a state of being, as in like I be gay? No, that does not really come around <laughs> until like yeah. the okay. 18th. Like, maybe 18th, but realistically the 19th century. Um, in the Middle Ages, it is just, see- like, sex is seen as acts. It's a, a thing that yeah, you do. Yeah, it is a thing right? that you do. It is not who you are. So, yeah, it's it's very much, we are penalizing these acts. We are saying these specific acts are sinful, i.e., like, not allowed. <laughs> um mm-hmm. But yeah, the idea of like having an identity that's tied to, like the idea of sexual orientation isn't a thing yet. Thank you for asking so that I could clear that up. Um, yeah, because I just, I mean, I, like, I'm, I'm curious about that because I know that there is a part, so when, is it the seventh circle of hell in Dante? Yes. Which is like the 13th century where the, um the quote-unquote like the homosexuals are there with the bankers because they're they're not they're people who don't produce anything let me see give me a sec i haven't like so i haven't (laughs) to be fair i haven't read this in a while i haven't read the defying comedy and since undergrad it's like been a minute yeah it's the seventh circle Okay, so it is just sodomites yeah. are in the seventh circle. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was, I, I was gonna say because I they couldn't remember how that was phrased. Set up. Okay. But 
yeah yeah it's 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 again very it's still very like um sex like sex is something you do it is not like an identity it's not like an inherent we can go back and like record over this uh, oh yeah yeah. section so like we have that you said right thanks anyway so we have the 11th century (laughs) we start seeing a, a slightly more harsher attitudes um and the thing to remember is that like a lot of the times these things are politically motivated more so than like religiously motivated my favorite Mm -hmm. example is this is earlier obviously but it's also happening further east than this is sixth century you have emperor justinian in the byzantine empire and he passed legislation against same-sex relations specifically so that he could persecute certain political enemies whose sexual histories were known to him so a lot of the time when these things do actually get criminalized it's often like because they are looking to like get specific people right (laughs) um it's sort of similar to like in the inquisition actually um justinian what a backstabbing queen right he knows things (laughs) and he he um so like for example during the spanish inquisition right like Uh it was basically unheard of for people to be um like tried for sodomy alone but it could be tacked on to your like thing where they're like, he's a heretic and is sacrilegious. And also we saw him doing, <laughs> doing unnatural acts. <laughs> like, so again, it's, it, it's kind of starts out in this way, but then we get the council right. of Nablus in 1120, which was in the kingdom mm-hmm. of Jerusalem, like during mm-hmm. the crusades. And there were some severe penalties for sodomy in the aftermath of their defeat at the Field of Blood. So that's always fun. But then, you know, again, that's kind of happening specifically in like a warring area and like within the military. Mm -hmm. But then we also have in the 13th century in France... Uh, sodomy resulted in like these were the worst ones I could find was that it would result in the castration at the first offense dismemberment on the second and burning on the third jeez yeah what the hell France wait okay so wait (laughs) yeah I mean in most you just like have zero limbs (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) Okay, sorry. I shouldn't be laughing about that, but, like, by the time you get to the the third one, it's, like, commitment. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Normally, though, I will say that was, like, obscenely harsh um so for contrast in 14th century italy there were laws against sodomy specifically Mm -hmm. um but if you were found this it was like some of your property could be confiscated by the city government so like you get a slap on the wrist not like your body yeah not like your body parts but then we have (laughs) 
you know, King Henry VIII in 1533 enacted and I swear to this is true, the Buggery Act of 1533, which enacted the death penalty for sodomy, which, I mean, that's when you start getting into the early modern period and, like, you do see Mm -hmm. death penalty as a more and more common, um, like, cry, like, like, it becomes a more common like punishment um for being a like in general and just like for... in general because um we also see okay. once we get into the early modern period both France and England enact capital mm-hmm. punishment for sodomy in their colonies as well okay yeah um and it's really not until people start and then like throughout the 19th century it slowly gets like like you get more and more like pushback on this of people being like hey maybe don't (laughs) anyway i'm sorry that i had to leave it leave this part off on this but i did want to basically say like yeah for for a lot of a lot of the time there like it actually would have been pretty maybe not chill but like (laughs) <laughs> there was like a solid while there in the early Middle Ages where everyone was like, I don't know, I guess. Like, eh. Yeah. So it would have been probably pretty yeah. okay. Until, you know, the 12th and 13th centuries where everyone went absolutely bonkers for a while and then decided <laughs> that was how we were going to handle through. things. What is it, the middle of the 20th century when most places fully decriminalize? Yeah. And I have some stuff to say about lesbians in the Middle Ages, but that's going to be extras. Devin, it's your turn to talk. Margot, it's your turn to talk. <laughs> Whoever you are. Whoever you are. Um, whatever yeah. you call yourself. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, I'm going to be talking about something rather specific just because, like, right, we've sort of continue on that trajectory throughout like colonial the colonial world on the like don't stick things in people's butts you're going to jail until the 20th century and the gay rights movement and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and then really it's uh like the 1980s and um the aids crisis that really like pushes the gay rights movement into like the forefront of stuff there's a bunch of like really great podcasts that talk about that specifically. So like you should go check those out. Um, I'm going to talk about a specific term that is used in North America to talk about s- certain things that fall on the spectrum of sexuality um, and where it came from, why it exists and why it's kind of contentious. And that is the term two spirit. Um, so what is it and where did it come from? <laughs> Uh, because I think a lot of people think that this is a term that, like a lot of sort of colonial conceptions of indigenous people and indigenous culture, that it's just sort of existed forever. And this is like a concept that exists for Native America, whatever that is. Like that was in quotes. Like in, that was, had scare quotes, right? It's like in National Treasure. Yes, it's like a national treasure. Okay, we watched National Treasure <laughs> two weeks ago, and at one point in time in National Treasure 2, they talk about how Helen Mirren is 
what is, she's fluent in Ancient Native, Native American. American. Because there was one language across an entire continent, was, and Helen Mirren knows I'm it. I'm sorry, I had to Any- do this to you. <laughs> anyway, those things don't exist, no, right? And so, not. like, two spirit is not like some like ancient magical term or whatever. You know, it's not like dances with wolves happening out here. Um, two spirit was a term that was created in 1990 at the Indigenous uh, Lesbian and Gay International Gathering in Winnipeg. Um, and to quote from the like documents that came out of that meeting, um, it was specifically chosen to distinguish between and distance Native American or First Nations people from non-Native peoples in this sort of like sexuality space. Um, and it was initially uh, at that conference to spirit. It was it was used both. In, uh, in English and then also in Ojibwe uh, to recognize the people who um, originally controlled the land that Winnipeg is currently on. Right. Um, and so, like, that's, like, super recent and uh, was proposed by, like, just a dude. Um, I can find his <laughs> name real quick. Just some guy. Oh, no. I mean, it is a real person. Oh, crap. I did not write down their name. Anyway. Um, then it went through, like, a committee and, like, it became this thing. And uh, there's a specific reason why it was proposed, why they were even talking about it at this, like, conference thing. Um, and that is because of uh, European or Euro-Western anthropologists. Right. Um, who, until the late 20th century, used the term uh, berdash to describe essentially any person of an indigenous tribe or community that filled a sort of like non-binary gender role in their community um, or was part of a, a organized and structured third gender in said community. Um, This term uh, was almost exclusively used to talk about men or persons who are perceived of as male um, who the anthropologists have viewed as viewed as homosexual or effeminate uh, by like European standards, um, but it was also sometimes used for women or persons perceived as female or as lesbians in like the European context, um, and then sometimes was applied to intersex people as well, which is just like incorrect. Uh, and the the real like crux of the issue, right, uh, is that this was a term that these anthropologists decided to use um it derives from the french badash which uh i guess yeah or the english equivalent bardash (laughs) which is um quote unquote like a passive homosexual or even like a boy prostitute right Uh, i don't yeah like uh whatever those things are um and that term in french or the weird english version of it uh was actually then even like if we go back was from the Persian, which they had a word that was slightly similar that referred to specifically like sex slaves that were prisoners of war. Yeah. Um, and there's like some other things that went into like the creation of this word that has to do with like sort of very early European and uh, like Eurasian wars of conquest. Um, so they like refer to 
those kinds of of roles either of like when we've talked about before people who were held in bondage to serve as like sex slaves and to have sex acts acted upon them right uh, rather than to be like active participants um and so obviously like right this was not a term that indigenous people like claimed for themselves and has since fallen out of use in anthropological circles as well since the towards the end of the uh 20th century uh anthropologists stopped using it as well um and it has at least in like anthropological circles or in places where outsiders are writing about indigenous communities um two spirit has been sort of favored um but the the term has sort of like entered the lexicon to the mixed results which we'll get into uh but Again, to be clear, before Winnipeg in 1990, this was not a term that was used by anyone to describe themselves. Um, so uh, a little bit more background. Why was this term like even proposed in the first place? Um, why do we need terms like this? Uh, or why would people think that we need a term like this? Um, why couldn't we just stop using that super offensive term? Um and there are, like, some legitimate arguments for why we might need them. And to do that, I'm going to have to, like, go into a little bit of colonial history that doesn't have anything to do with homosexual sex or relationships, and then a little bit into language. So um, if you're familiar with North American colonial history, then you know that the term um, indigenous North American encompasses an entire continent of nations, communities, and histories going back at least like 40,000 years. Um, and these are hundreds of languages, cultures, ideologies, and just sort of general ways of being. It's just like a massive broad term, just like huge. Um, it's essentially like European. What, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, and so like, that's just, it's huge and massive and Again, hundreds of languages, hundreds of cultures, hundreds of ideologies, hundreds of like ideas about how people exist and interact with each other, and of course, like then the ceremonial aspects that go into all of that as well. Right. Um, however, since the 1500s and the rapid and violent colonization of this land, uh, the historic relationships between indigenous nations and communities have had to change. Right. right. So where they would have been viewed themselves and been viewed as sort of discrete entities. Um, they've had to be sort of like lumped into this uh, sort of larger demographic, essentially. So um, since at least the 1970s, there has been to some extent an organized pan-Indian movement on this continent. Right. Um, and like pan-Indian is the term that is used by the movement. Um, yeah. In with within this larger movement, this is where like AIM comes in, um, and a few other like specific organizations. Um, but this is the sort of larger movement for indigenous rights in North America. Um, that is like cross national. Right. Um, and within this movement, indigenous people from all communities and nations work together to advocate for their collective rights to the colonial governments that are currently holding power over land and resources, right? So right. in Canada, this would be um, sort of all of the First Nations working together to advocate for themselves to the Canadian government and the U.S. It's the same, but like from all of those nations to the United States government. Um, 
And so, like, this is where things get sort of complicated because of needing different cultures, ceremonies, and ideologies to be recognized and discussed in a common language. This is normally English um, because it is the, like, dominant colonial language of both of these countries, uh, the most widely spoken. Right. Um, And it is... Obviously, these are, things are also done in Spanish and French, but that's neither here nor there. Um, it's really difficult um, to do this and, like, at all. And then doing it in a colonial language is even harder. Right. And this is where I have to take a moment to talk about language. And I've sort of talked about this in previous episodes, probably. I talk about it a lot because it's difficult and it makes everything in history the language itself makes studying history more complex than you might think it is um if you don't study history right if this isn't your whole life and you're not like ah language um and how we use it makes things harder and it also makes it harder to talk about someone who exists outside of a sort of like victorian or 19th century gender ideal and we'll talk about why that's important as well so first language um all languages are constantly changing and this is just sort of a fact of human communication and the académie française can come and fight me about it because it's just how things are and i don't care that they want to inscribe and prescribe exactly what language is it's not gonna happen um so language is changing and developing and that's why Right. If you, dear listener, speak English, um, you probably don't speak you, or you might not speak the same English that I do. You know, I speak the version of English that I learned um, growing up in North Carolina, uh, which is slightly different from the language that's used in Canada, slightly different from Australia and everywhere else, um, and specifically different from right the English that is spoken as a national functional language in like India. Um, Anyway, and we all certainly don't speak the same language as Shakespeare or Chaucer or whoever ex-historical figure. The guy um, who wrote Beowulf. Whoever yeah, jotted which that down. Could be, could be argued to just be like an entirely different language, yep, right? Yep, but we it's call it Old English, English, so I mean... Yeah. Yeah. Um, so like there's things like that, right? And yeah, like exactly. That, our language is definitely like deeply connected to that. There's like a whole thing. It's super weird. Language is changing. Um, but the changes to it reflect the cultural ideas of the time in which those changes are being made and sometimes vice versa, right? Yes. So it can be really hard to advocate for a certain change if your language can't express what that is. And we can look at you know, anywhere on TikTok and discussions about how pronouns function to, like, find that. Um, I'm not going to go into oh, that. Oh, yeah, though. no, that's... <laughs> we only have, like, 45 Hard minutes. Limits. We don't have time for a deep um, dive into TikTok. No. Uh, but, right, so the language that we use now has certainly changed a lot in recent years, and language tends to change... Uh, Right. Yeah. So the language that we're using now is is really different from what it was even like 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Like language changes pretty rapidly, but like major sort of structural and conceptual changes to language happened around other periods of massive social change. And this is why on a fundamental level, the language that we use today as English speakers and the definitions that we have for words today 
um, usually have their roots sort of in the 19th century. Um, so those words, right, etymologically probably go back much further, but the way that they're being used now is a, like 19th century conventions. Yes. And um, this is because like I would argue that the last period of this like massive social change happened in the 19th century. So aside, yes, the internet has changed the world, um, but it's really only spread, changed the way that we spread and receive information. Um, and all of this is sort of pl a play on technology that was really created and innovated in the 19th century. Um, so what I'm getting at right now is that there are a few comparable times in terms of change of how life is lived for everyone on the planet to the 19th century. And my example for this is, right, if you show someone from the 16th century a telephone or an electric light or a movie, they would not have a place in their culture for which to contextualize those things. Um, and even if you were showing them like the 19th century version of all of those things, I have to um, be, or even like a cot, I have to be silent starting now. So you, you can talk. I just, Christian's going to be talking and I'm going to be quiet so that you can just cut me out. Okay. Um, or so right. Uh, even if you're showing them like the 19th century version of those cultural items, um, like they there's just there's not a place in which to conceptualize the technology or ideas that are needed for those things to work even like things like a cotton mill right the looms and stuff sort of i guess sort of look similar but the idea of like production on that scale just like doesn't compute um they don't have you wouldn't have a way for someone from the 1500s to conceptualize that thing but if you show someone from the 19th century a modern telephone or email or television like they would certainly be stunned and freaked out and be like what the hell is this but uh there is a context for it right an email is essentially a telegraph machine that you have in your house um uh, the television is in motion pictures in your house like they get it they have the fundamentals for that um the the technology that we have now that we're all like oh my gosh the world is changing we don't know how to deal with this these are like advent like innovations on technology that was invented in the 19th century right and so this is where this what our modern culture is starts there um and so many of the things that we have about our culture how we interact as people how we work how we live what our families look like all of these things are coming from that period um right how we move about how we talk to people what we think of as like being a way that a person is in the world comes from the 19th century. This is why earlier you said the concept of being homosexual is really a, a 19th century concept. The sex is some part of who you are rather than a thing that you do 19th century. So that's where our language about right being gay, mm -hmm. lesbian, trans, all of these things come from this 19th century conception of what is a gender what is your space right that you're supposed to be acting in all of that stuff so what does this have to do with two-spirit and the pan-indian movement <laughs> what does this like weird <laughs> tangent have to do with anything <laughs> um right so there's not a word in modern english to talk about indigenous concepts of third genders or of really any genders right because there's an argument that talking about something as a third gender pre-establishes the idea of this western european 
gender binary in the first place, which probably probably doesn't exist, right? Um, and anyway, if we so if we had this word, it would not if we had this word already established in English, it would not be able to get to the nuance of each of these sort of variations of third genders and the roles that those play in particular indigenous societies. Um, so how do you advocate for people who are existing in those spaces in this larger movement that is by design outward and colonial facing? The answer that everyone came up with, or everyone came up with, uh, there was consensus on at this one meeting, um, was two-spirit. And so this term was created to allow for a way to talk about sort of all of the, like, what we might call, like, queer people or non-binary people or people who don't have what colonial cultures would categorize as heterosexual sex without using colonial English terms like gay, lesbian, or trans, because those words exist in a cultural context of colonial European gender concepts, and so don't necessarily speak to the indigenous concepts that people are trying to express. Right. Right. That's why we have and use two-spirit. <laughs> so did everybody like this idea, and is it, like, universally used, and is everybody, like, on board? And no. Um, and there's some, like, really valid reasons for this. Um, th- one of which is this is still an English term, even if you then translate it into Ojibwe like they did. Um, and it is... it because of that in the same way that like I think in previous episodes I've talked about nation as being the closest thing that we can use to refer to like large groups of indigenous people um it it presupposes a lot um so there are people in um indigenous communities who don't like the way that two-spirit suggests that perhaps that person is both male and female because, uh, again, that binary might not exist in that space at all. And then there's the issue of the the way that um, indigenous communities and indigenous children are sort of being separated from or have historically been separated from elders and from their language. And so are using this term as a replacement for indigenous terms. Um which the people who are arguing against the use of this term say uh, sort of defeats the purpose, right? The purpose is supposed to be that this is a term that we use to talk to Europeans and talk to people in English, and then we continue to maintain, like, our culture and idea and sovereignty. And that, they are arguing is not what is happening so there are then other people who are suggesting why don't we just use the term for the people in the specific specific community that we're talking about and use that specific term in that language um, because that's the only way to really get that concept across and that has drawbacks as well again like i said these were hundreds of communities and languages and you know for again for lack of a better term nations so how do you argue or advocate to something like all of canada for a specific term in a specific language that maybe only exists and like and is used in one part of like manitoba um so that is the there's not consensus on when and how it's used um how like what it actually is conveying um 
whether or not the term has whether or not uh like the movement has sort of adequately made the nuance that was intended with the term available to the general public so that when people use it and referring to sort of like all indigenous pe- indigenous people who might on some level fit this like whether or not they're the like colonial person is like understanding all of that nuance um so yeah the, it's it's a a little it can it it can be a, a difficult word but it's like sort of everything um when we're talking about these like vastly disparate uh cultures and communities so right these like european colonial cultures and structures and then like indigenous communities and cultures and structures and how they like are interacting um like using english or any language makes it difficult for those concepts to really uh bridge that gap um there's one other thing I was going to say, and I just lost it while I was saying that sentence. Oh, and it's it. I think that this does also reflect some, on some level, like the the way that I think people right now are trying to reconcile with the idea of um, like homosexuality or queerness or anything like that being an identity at all. Right, that is. And how you relate to that uh, is really, really different across generations because of how that term has been used, how people have thought about it. Like, I mean, again, we can say like before the 19th century, um, you wouldn't you didn't have this term used in the same way because that concept didn't exist. Right. There were men and there were women and there were men who sometimes had sex with men, but it wasn't like necessarily necessarily a like part of who they were or structure their entire sexual identity um and how we think about that like it's it's, I think we're still working out a lot of that language and how we think about those identities so um this is one way that that has gotten even more complicated by throwing it in between two at least two cultures and at least one language and then a whole community of other languages that just makes it like way more difficult um so yeah that's the history of that one specific term yay happy valentine's day uh yeah so uh we'll be back next week with our last very last episode of the season so uh see you then thank you for listening to the Bapiaga project and as always thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible please follow us on twitter instagram and our website for the most up-to-date happenings in the project also please consider supporting us on patreon it'll really help us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways and there's patreon exclusive merch thanks again and we'll see you next week